Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. The music scene has got me down. Oh, shit. Those solid rhythms. That famous makes you want to twist. Welcome to the Ugly Radio. Tonight's episode How to Disappear Completely Ish. So, I'm standing here at a bus stop. It's nothing special, it's just a bus stop. A crooked little sign that reads Denny Street in a list of bus times. The earbuds I'm wearing are running out of battery and I forgot the charging case at home. Figures. I fidget with the hospital bracelet on my wrist as I contemplate a hell of getting on a public bus without music to disassociate when I notice that the woman who was once standing next to me waiting for the bus as well was now reduced to a small pile of ashes. Buried in the pile, I can see some glasses, a driver's license that was revoked, and a library card. Have you ever seen anyone spontaneously combust? One minute they're here, the next minute they're not? It's a fascinating thing. The phenomenon in which a person's physiological state overwhelms itself to the point of which your body simply bursts. Fascinating. Although, questionable. One minute you're here, the next you're just a pile of little ashes in your driver's license. It's hopeless. You have no control over it. It just happens. Poof, bam, kerplow, smoke, fizzle, gone. Into the eternal everything where you become nothing. Something to be blown away by the next casual breeze or an asshole in a Tesla. Never to be seen again. But then when you think about it, you know, really think about it, the whole bursting into flames like the human torch without any explanation whatsoever thing, the randomness of it all, it it could happen to you. It could happen to me. It, It could happen to anyone, even you listening to me talking to you right now. It never does, but it could. The hospital bracelet chuffs my wrist, causing the skin to dry. I try to take my mind off how they misspelled my name by thinking about all the most likely ways a person could bite the dust nowadays. Heart attack, liver failure, kidney disease, car accidents, suicides, depression, 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 depression. Or the occasional idiot who dies in an incredibly ironic accident, usually involving a natural disaster or a live animal, and usually it's made viral for the enjoyment of others to witness. I take a moment to contemplate deactivating my social media. What am I going to tell people? What is there to say? Dare I bring down the mood? 
I think how much space I'm actually allowed to take up in this day and age and would it even matter in the grand scheme of everything to say anything at all. What statement could I possibly make? What post? What tweet? Maybe I should TikTok it. I contemplate getting a TikTok account. Nah. Back in the old days when all the cool shit happened, a person's death was a spectacle. And by spectacle, I mean messy. Really, really messy. Men died in combat, real combat, not 40 miles away, but 40 inches from the face, where you could see every line. Their eyes burst with blood, the teeth breaking, swords as tall as monuments, piercing flesh as soft as tissue paper. Men and women used to die in the most spectacular fashions. Prometheus stole fire from Mount Olympus and gave it to mankind so that all could benefit, only to be chained to a rock by the gods and have his insides eaten daily by a giant, pissed-off turkey vulture. Joan of Arc led the French army to many victories on the battlefield, uniting France under God and country, only to be captured by the English and burned at the stake for heresy. Icarus was a cocky son of a bitch who wanted to fly to the sun, only to realize that the sun is very hot. Nowadays, they give awards for that level of stupidity. Hell, if you market it right, you'd get your own limited series on Hulu. But can we just respect the audacity of someone dying so magnificently? To combust spontaneously? I, I mean, seriously. It's junk science and not even a real thing, but what a statement, you know? Fuck TikTok. It, it could it could be science. It, it could be blind, stupid luck, or or it could be a message from God. The the absolute madness of it all. Think of how little the mess is besides the pile of ashes and indestructible driver's license. It's better than doctors' waiting rooms, monthly appointments, incremental diagnoses, and people giving you alternatives, having to make phone calls. Phone calls you don't want to make swallowing the urge to throw up when people tell you everything's fine. I don't even know what that word is, fine. It... Really though, it isn't fine. There's something inside you, slowly killing you, and you are utterly powerless to stop it. Telling your family, telling your friends, that powerlessness spreads to everyone and no matter how much you cling to a hope you sink and realize that sometimes it's better to burn than to fade death can be a petty petty thing so for a moment so for a moment let's consider the merits of simply bursting into nothingness poof bamf plow. So what if it isn't technically real, a farce, a crock, a fairy tale, complete and utter biscuit crackers, but would it be so bad to believe in something that might not be real? Would it kill you to believe in something so far-fetched as a poor schmuck waiting for a bus just bursting into flames? It might be unlucky, it might be random, but at least you'll be remembered. I forcibly break the medical bracelet away from my wrist and I place it atop the pile of ashes. The bus is coming earlier than usual today. Figures. Have you ever seen someone spontaneously combust? 
It's a fascinating thing. One moment you're here, and the next... Ferreras. Alondra pushes her grocery cart listlessly down the aisle of the quality food mart. 
It's two in the morning. Her trucker husband is off in one of his long hauls. And she's wondering why the barons of industry who make all the important decisions in the world think we need six different kinds of pecan sandies, but not the kind she likes and usually finds exactly here. In this aisle, on this shelf, in this very spot where there was no some kind of strawberry puff with a coconut on top. She stares at the strawberry puffs. She's had a bit of vodka and is torn between cynical responses. She throw the cookies down, stamp on them, Leave the store in a storm of social protest? Does she elevate her consciousness to that realm where pecan sandies might as well be strawberry puffs and buy them anyway? Or does she stand there and give up without being able to either move on or go home? She stands there. Maynard sees the hot chick with the munchies, and there is no off switch in his brain that can keep him from taking in the black lace thong out of the sleek white workout pants that barely skim her belly button, the pale pink top with the built-in bra that doesn't have to work very hard because her breasts stand up on their own with that infrastructure of liquid plastic, and he's hoping she's got some ink because that would make her more available. Damn, she's wearing a ring, and it's a big one. Alondra feels the pressure of his stare and turns around. Scruffy hair, dirty white t-shirt, some kind of work boot, and a grocery cart full of cheap beer. Clearly a local. She turns back to the infinitude of the cookies and her pampered, small world. Dewey is supposed to be surveilling the implant units via remote feed in their no-name little towns, but he's actually playing computer games. It's okay. Nothing ever happens, but they're paying him half a million dollars a year to watch and wait, so he is. The command center where Dewey works is in a bunker beneath the Arctic Ocean that houses the Neighbors, a pale lavender octopus extraterrestrial species working with our guys to stop whatever is happening in the dimensions from happening on Earth. They are an advanced species that lives simultaneously in many dimensions with the support of mind-altering substances and technology and can access cell synchronicity remotely. The implant units are randomly chosen humans implanted with parts of the octopus tentacles at the brainstem so that the neighbors can read humanity from within. They lurk within the nervous system and rarely make a peep. The implant units are unaware of their special configuration as they live outwardly normal lives, and Dewey watches to make sure nothing goes... wrong. Maynard has parked his truck where he can see the grocery store exit and still get out the driveway. This is not me, he says as he slaps the steering wheel. He knows the rules. Jail's expensive, and you don't know what you're gonna get in there. One of his high school buddies landed in the drunk tank and came out in a coma. She was coming. She was a little wobbly on her feet. That could mean she needs help, Maynard hoped, if she doesn't shoot him. She pulls out into the main drag in her glorious convertible, not doing anything about it if the wind messes up her hair. He pulls out after her, keeping a polite distance from those mystic beamer taillights. He doesn't know where this is going to end up, but this is his Tuesday night. And he is going to own it. Dewey is shaken from his thousandth level of gaming glory by a sudden beep on the watcher's monitor. This is not good. 
When the implant units get too cozy, the cell synchronicity of the neighbors starts to go awry, and the aliens begin to bleed into human consciousness. The results can be unpredictable. Dewey waits and watches, but the beeping continues. He pops into the visual feed. It always creeps him out to know that aliens don't implant cameras into humans. They are cameras. With the neighbors, dimension, telepathy, and technology meld, and if our species hadn't taken a wrong evolutionary turn with Egypt, we would have eventually been mind-melding in outer space, too. Alondra has everything arranged for the proper disposition of the evening. Vodka, beef jerky, a liter of imported mineral water, and exactly two cookies. After all, you have to live. She arranges the sofa cushions to support her legs, and she has nothing to sprawl over expensive upholstery, and takes the remote in hand. It is now past three. She tries not to look at the time because it seems judgmental. This is television. There should be no time. There should only be an eternity of wasteland where people expose their storage lockers, their wedding dresses, their life-size cakes in the shape of Nefertiti so Alondra can smirk at them for $98 a month. The shapes flash before her eyes as she settles into bliss. Suddenly, the door bursts open, and the skeevy guy from the grocery store is standing in her living room. He looks so frightened. Alondra bursts out laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I am so sorry. Uh, get out of here. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. This is me leaving. Bye. He stands there. This is a level four interference. If those two get it on, they will experience the neighbor's consciousness in total. He hits the call button. What, are you, what is wrong with you? What are you watching? Asks Maynard. <laughs> None of your business. Okay. Do I have to call 911? I wish you wouldn't. I'm not gonna do anything. I just can't find myself. Men are so pathetic. They always fall for it. It's like a machine where you push the button and the same thing happens every time. And at 28, Alondra is tired of it already. But she can't stop being powerful. It's a high wrapped in a game, wrapped in pure pleasure, being her. She stares him down. Dewey's boss, Cal, comes running from his dormitory in his pajamas. What is it? Crazy love. Cal examines the screen. He is a psychiatrist. Reduce dopamine and oxytocin. Increase adrenaline. Dewey complies. They watch. I have to go. I don't know why I came here. It, is it that you are real in a way that I cannot explain? It's not your beauty or your obvious fertility. Then. That's what men want. They both nod. It's biology. It's a stupid game, but I'm all in. I can see that. Now he's going philosophical, thinks Alondra. Oh, this is the part that takes all night. Sometimes it's good, but usually it's just showing off. And this guy doesn't have much in the head of the youth department, clearly. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't see how you could. I know I am merely a stump with a perception at one end and a genetic delivery mechanism at the other end, and I spend most of my life not really full. No. No! No! Dewey is starting to panic. I want a sense of beyond, and not just in drugs, muses Maynard. I've done lots of drugs, but I usually don't because the dealers are so scuzzy. I don't know the right dealer. 
they're always wanting more. They are both concerned by the obvious problem with drug dealers. The situation needs to be remedied, but not by the lower middle class. Do you want a child? He says. I am a woman. And that's the ultimate adventure. And I can have this night end crazy. No baby! No baby! Dewey yells. <laughs> I'm so drunk, says Elantra. <laughs> and I don't know how I got this drunk. He's still standing, and they look at each other. She's embarrassed by the vodka. She should be pure. I won't try sit down. Normal people would, but I can't stand this furniture. It's a bribe, and you're a schlub for living like this, and I don't know what else you should do. You're lost, but the world wants you lost. If I were a great man, I would make you go to college or something. You're fixing me. She says, I knew you'd be all superior with those stupid boots. They look at his work boots. Construction. He seems to know his way around orange extension cords. I hate my boots. They're just wrong. He takes off his boots and throws them across the room. She wonders how her husband is going to take these boots. See? No more. She is rethinking the plan to have a child with him. Those boots were better on. I'm standing and can't figure out how I'm standing. I, I shouldn't have these arms. They're wrong, says Maynard. Oh, my arms are wrong too, says Alondra, noticing her beautiful arms. We have to do something, says Dewey. I'll take it from here, says Cal as he sits down at the monitor and begins the chemical manipulation of both parties. How did we get these wrong arms? I can hardly work them. I want this head off. Okay. I just can't be so small. <sighs> Let's take mine off first. Then I'll help you with yours, Alondra offers. They start trying to remove the awful heads, but their tentacles don't comply. The universe is energy, and there are other energy states beyond this. I am not sure how this is more real, except that I am told that it is says Alondra, and that this energy state is somehow necessary. This is the one that leads to the next one. And the beings have to master this one first. This has gone on too long. Where is the station? says Alondra. Why are we here with this stupid species? says Maynard. We should just clean house and go home. We can't clean house. The rest of the energy would... Freak out? Yes. And we don't want another dinosaur situation. I loved the dinosaurs. They were... Don't go there, says Maynard tenderly. Elegant. And they're all gone. They're not gone. They moved in time. No, but these... These dinosaurs are gone. It was 66 million years ago. So? The neighbors were able to conserve a great deal of memory of former lives with each successive body transition. It was something about them. I like this one. I think I'll keep it, says Maynard. If I can have you. This one can be had. Just get the money. The unit is programmed for a thing called money that places it ahead of the others. Simeon biology. That's no problem. Okay. Aliens have lost themselves in the implants. Cal stares at the readout, pushes a button, and sits back. Nothing else he can do. Dewey screams. 
No, no, no! Watchers tend to get melded to the subjects from afar. Cal calls to the orderlies. Unstable! And clears out as they sedate Dewey and take him to the infirmary. The SWAT team bursts into the house as Dewey and Alondra are caressing. Objects flying around the room, and the electrical grid of the entire neighborhood is shorted out by the power surge. The orderlies stave off their puking and the catapult into other dimensions long enough to shoot the lovers with sleep darts. Days later, Dewey manages to crawl out of bed into his wheelchair and push himself over to Alondra's bed, where she is strapped down, raving, the lone survivor of implant removal. I'm sorry, says Dewey. Asshole. When you move into the brick house, written by Jane Rebecca Canarella. When you move into the brick house, you don't bring boxes. You march a procession of castaway cheesecloth tied to the end of sapling branches that bump into door frames. At night, the carpet turns into small spiders that hide in the seams of your clothes and underwear. 
They snuggle beside your zipper. When you get to work the next day, you find the spiders sneaking out of the folds of your wallet and erecting forts among the campground cubicles. They raise tiny flags from matchbox stick garrisons and distill the burnt coffee from the break room to make firkins of booze. Your boss tells you that you have to stop the spiders from burning post-its or you'll be fired. You inform the spiders that they need to keep quiet, but the leader shouts insults at you until you threaten to squish the camp. He rolls his many eyes and mutters words that your mother told you would get your mouth washed out with soap. Imagining foamy, minuscule bubbles erupting out of the leader spider's mouth with every oath, you hover your foot until the spiders wave white flags made from loose-leaf paper. When you get home to the brick house, you find a bed made up of long-haired orange cats. You strike an agreement with the principal of the ginger moggies that come nighttime you can sleep on them in exchange for fish heads and tails still attached to the skeleton. You boil dandelion stems on top of a flat-stomached iron stove and share the brew with the carpet spiders who are now complaining of headaches and hurt bellies. While draping the tiniest wet washcloths over prickly foreheads, you tut-tut their bad behavior. In the morning, the spiders tap your face until you wake. A cluster holds the phone to your ear and urges you to take the day off work and drink wine out of the hats of acorns with them. You oblige them and spend the next several hours playing a drinking game called Zip Zap, tossing back a thimble's amount of white wine every so often. The long-haired orange cats whittle fish bones into darts, and together you toss them at a painted bullseye. The eye blinks lazily, causing the cats to miss. They dent their arrows on the red slabs. Several hours later, your boss calls to tell you that while you were napping, the spiders had been making prank phone calls in the form of pirate shanties. This has consequently led to your termination. You confront the carpet spiders, and they are remorseless. But they offer tulip cups of alcohol in lieu of apologies. The long-haired orange cats continue throwing fish bones at the wall. They make tapping noises as they bounce off the bricks.
The Ugly Radio is a production of Ugly Radio Presents and is part of the Podmoth Network. Tonight's episode was produced by Andrew Shanks. Tonight's episode was How to Disappear Completely-ish. Segments featured were How to Disappear Completely-ish, written and performed by Andrew Shanks. When You Move into the Brick House, written by Jane Rebecca Canarella, performed by Sarah Rose Nottingham. Tuesday Night Munchies, written by Joanne Ferreras, performed by Zenaida Smith, Liam White, Cody Smith, and Mike Gilson. Music guest tonight was Beverly Crusher, performing Scab and Scared, both singles now available on Apple Music and Spotify. Also featuring Sphere by Bodie Beats, title song provided by Unknown Citizen. Comment, send questions, and request to theuglyradio at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Support the show by becoming a Patreon member. Visit patreon.com slash theuglyradio and give a listen to other podcasts on the Podmoth Network. Podmoth is a tirelessly curated collection of weird, odd, and macabre podcasts. Check them out. Thank you so much for listening. Be safe out there, take care of one another, and we'll see you in the void. Today, we bask in the light of mustachioed greatness. Hi, this is Daniel Segura, host of the Mustachioed Podcastio. You like mustaches? You like movies? You like sexy chicanos? Well, the Podcastio is the place for you. We are talking legendary mustaches from Charles Bronson to the Great Bird Reynolds to the OG Ice-T. Find the Mustachioed Podcastio anywhere you listen to podcasts. That is M-O-U-S-T-A-S-H-I-O-D Podcastio.